skipped over the coffee. Well, today, uh, I want to touch on something kind of as a transition. When we get next week, we're going we're gonna to introduce a new theme for, for Christmas. And I felt like just as a, a transition kind of a thought, especially after this conference, uh, I titled this talk, The Times They Are Changing. Now, that's the title of a song for my generation. Uh, how many of you ever heard that song? Okay, nobody with their head shaved is raising their hand here. Okay, so it's all, all of us older people. But there is a famous guy named Bob Dylan uh, who was... Um, you know, quite the thing back in my day. And when I was nine years old, he wrote this song, The Times They Are Changing. And I want to read two stanzas of it because I, I think it, it says something uh, that, re- that will resonate if you listen to it. And you, it, will, it will say something to us today because I think it, we're in a time like that time that inspired this song. So I'm not going to try to sing it <laughs> like Bob Dylan. Oh, no, I could probably do it like Bob. Uh, Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it. Wow, it's emotional. I don't know why. Sorry. <clears throat> accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone if your time to you is worth saving then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the times they are a-changing. Come, writers. Sorry. It's weird. I, I don't know where the emotion is coming from. <clears throat> I really don't. I don't. I've never cried hearing this song before. It's really weird. Uh, come, writers and critics who prophesize with your pen and keep your eyes wide. The chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wheel still in spin. And there's no telling who that it's naming. For the loser now will be later to win, for the times they are changing. Uh, I'll just read the last line. It says, the line it is drawn and the curse it is cast. The slow one now will later be fast. As present now will later be past, the order is rapidly fading, and the first one now will later be last for the times they are changing. And I, I picked that to introduce this whole idea is uh, we're living in times where so much that we've known is changing, right? I mean, whether you're young or old, even when you're young, things, you may be 25 years old, things that were one way when you were 10 are so different now than they were then. And a, a lot of people who would in the church would be called prophetic or are saying that we're in a transitionary time. And I think, you know, many of you nodding your head, you've probably heard that here. And this, you know, the, the change is a mixed bag. There's, there's good change and there's not so good change. And I think God... I don't think this is a stretch to say this, that God is behind a lot of what's going on. That, that a lot of change that's happening is, is God's hand. Uh, if, if, if we don't move with him, he, he will move. And we will get left behind. People are left behind. 
Uh, and I don't mean that in the Left Behind series books, you know. I just mean sometimes God begins to move, and people don't realize he's moving, and they kind of go, I kind of like it here. <laughs> I got a tent. I got the campfire. You know, I only have to go to the creek so far to the creek. I'm not moving. And God goes, well, we're, you know, I'm moving. Uh, and I think we have to be aware that some of the change and things that's going on around us is going to impact us. And here's the, here's the way I want to tell you it's going to impact us. Uh, Jay, would you, you guys give those out? Okay, you got them out. So what distinguishes followers of Jesus from everybody else in the world is going to shift. And I don't think this is the only way, and these, these points that I've, I'm going to share, I don't think this is the only way that's going to characterize the difference between people who are followers of Jesus and everybody else. But I think these things are going to be in near the bullseye of it. And I, and I could tell you some more, but, you know, I, I, could, I was going to put like 25 points there, but I didn't think anybody would want to stay through 25 points this morning. So... I pared it down to six, which is miraculous editing for me. And I, I, I framed my points as questions instead of statements because I think that they're going to be more impactful as questions because questions leave room for, you know, more than a statement. Sometimes a statement can make things very narrow and you miss a lot. Uh, and I think that, that God is at work doing things that we don't want to miss. So, people who follow Jesus authentically and people who don't are going to answer these questions, I believe, in increasingly different ways. And so the first question is this, and this is a play on words from Matthew 16. People are going to ask you, who are you? So the question is, who do people say you are? Who do people say you are? Now, people in Jesus' time were asked by Jesus, who do people say I am? Because that's, that's the most important question. But the second most important question, I think, is who do people say you are? Because the, ident- the, the issue of identity is can anybody say amen when I say the issue of identity is huge? Right? And, and, and we know in the church why it's huge, but in our culture, isn't the issue of identity huge? And isn't it a, a huge point of confusion? Like, it, it, when, when someone says, who are you? You're going to get 10,000 answers, right? But God wants us fundamentally to offer one answer. What do you think it is? When God's, when someone says to you, or someone says about you, they should be able to say one thing about you that's fundamentally true above everything else. And it's the most crucial thing about you. What is it? You're a beloved child of God above everything else. It's the, most, the single most defining thing about a human being Not that there aren't other things that are important. That is the most important. And in Paul's day and in our day, people were as confused then as we are now. And Paul wrote in Galatians, uh, in in a 
won't, I don't want to elaborate all around it, but he said, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's writing to the Galatians. Now, it, was it true that there were Jews and Gentiles and slave and free and male and female? Yes, those were the most defining things that in that day you could say about people. And that caused all kinds of division and trouble. But because of the gospel, God gave to people this gift of being adopted into his family and experiencing, despite all the other things, of being a teenager and an adult, of being LGBTQI dot 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 and cisgender, whatever the labels that, that we've attached around ourselves that, that have some value. They are not the fundamental thing. And if they are the fundamental thing, then we re- our life is really has a huge hole in it. And so the thing about the followers of Jesus is going to be people are going to look at you if, you're, if you say you're a follower of Jesus and they're either going to know, because you know it, that you're a beloved child of God or you're like everybody else. And do people, I just ask you this, do people, when they, the people who are closest to you, would they say about you that you say your fundamental identity is as a beloved child of God or as a Republican or a Democrat or African-American or Nigerian, or Ethiopian, or Texan, or, or what? Or a Browns fan? I mean, some people really do. I, I, I'm asking this question seriously. What are the people who, where you live, work, play, and learn, what do they say about who you are? Now, I'm not saying that everybody knows you well enough Who's, who's in that sphere, those spheres of influence, to know the deepest things in your life. But if you're a follower of Jesus, at some point, it's supposed to, make, it's supposed to be real to everyone around you. And it will be real if, if, if the single most important thing about you is that you're a beloved child of God. That's really going to make a difference in your life. I'm just telling you from experience, from my own experience and the experience I know of thousands of people that I've known well over my long life. Second, Kathy said bullet point. Second bullet point, who do you depend on to meet all the needs of your life? That is going to become increasingly a question that separates the followers of Jesus from everyone else. You know, if you go back in the Old Testament to the time of the Exodus, where the Jewish people were slaves in Egypt for over 400 years, their whole identity, everything was named. But they held on to, to some degree or other, the idea that they were people who were in covenant with the one true God. And they couldn't explain how things had gotten so sideways and how they had lost favor and seemed to be forgotten, but they began to cry out to God, and God sent Moses, and God began to, to wrestle with 
at first very kindly and then with increasing pressure that God can bring to bear with Pharaoh and the rulers of Egypt. And he said, listen, you're going to let my people go. If you don't, I'm going to show you whose God is the only God. And he did that not to wreck Egypt. He did that to try to show the Egyptians these gods you've been depending on, starting with the Nile and all the other, the ten plagues, the God, those, were, those ten plagues accomplished the purpose of showing the Egyptian people the folly of depending on the gods that they depend on. And I promise you, like in, at a certain point as the plagues intensified and things were shaken over and over, if you read the book of Exodus, it says there was a line between Goshen, where the, the people of Israel lived. It was like the, the bad part of town and all the rest of Egypt. And the plague stopped at the boundary of Goshen. The flies, like the plague of flies, it said there's like a, a bowl over Goshen and the flies wouldn't go there. Over and over and over. And the, the, the Jewish people had to learn to depend on the God of their, of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they struggle with that, and we're going to struggle with it. But times are coming where God is going to, he wants people to know that they can depend on him always and only. And he's going to create situations where if you haven't learned to depend on him, you're going to really be up the creek without a paddle. Because the gods that you've been depending on here and there, or maybe more than you should, are going to get exposed. And this question, who do you depend on to meet all the needs of your life, is going to be answered completely differently by believers than by non-believers, but followers of Jesus and the people who aren't following Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect about that. I, 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 the, the times, they are changing. This is going to happen. And I don't care how much money you have in your bank account or how good a job you have or how solid a family you have or how good your health is or whatever. When God shakes things, it shakes everything. And, the, and when the only thing that doesn't shake is the unshakable kingdom and the foundation of Jesus. And if your life is built on that, you're going to shake, but you're going to make it. Because that's what Jesus said. You know, the storms come. If, you ha- if your house, so to speak, is built on him and his word and obeying him, then you're going to get hit like everybody else, but your, your house is going to stand. But you're going to get tested, okay? Third bullet point. How well do your private and public selves align? In other words, people around you, though they don't see your private self, your private self is going to come out into the open whether you want it to or not. In fact, the wild thing is that whether, whether it's come out into the open or not now, <laughs> All the social media companies know everything about us. Do you understand? There isn't anything you're hiding. 
They, they listen to our conversations on our devices. The other day, Kathy and I were talking about buying a used car. Boom, my phone starts having ads about used cars on it without me looking for it. That's creepy, right? I'm thinking, what else are they listening to? You know, what else have I said that they've heard? And the followers of Jesus know this. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. And, and this is the first thing he says he, that he's encouraging them to do. He says, you're a follower of Jesus now, and I want you to put off the old, your old way of life, and put on this new way of life. And, he, and the first thing he said there, and I talked about this. We went through this a couple of years ago. We studied through this passage. We talked about uh, transparency, you know, honesty. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor for we're all members of one body. So what he's, he's saying is it's not just tell the truth about basic, you know, things in, in life. Don't lie about your age and, uh, you know, uh, your grades in school, things like that. He's saying Christ has created this whole new way that we can live where we can let the real us out and live from our true self. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about how Jesus came into town on the donkey. That was a picture of leading with your weakness. Because if you, if you got a weakness, don't hide it. Don't hide it. You don't have to hide it. Jesus says that doesn't define you. When he came in on a donkey, he was being vulnerable. He's, he's vulnerable. Jesus got tired. He, he got hungry. He got frustrated. He went through all the weaknesses as the Son of God and a, and a, and, and a human go through. And he lived it, and he empowers us to say, it may cost you something to lead with your weakness because this world system doesn't appreciate weakness. But what you get from me will more than make up for that. And the, the richness of life that you experience, the quality of life that you experience in relationships and in community is far better than the quality of life you have when you live in hiding, when you wear a mask. Now, you know, without going too deep down this rabbit hole, when I take a mask off that I realize I'm wearing, there's another one underneath it. But I've, I've taken the one off that I'm aware of, right? That's the only thing we're asked to do by the Lord is just be as honest as you can be. I have ways that I'm still hiding that I'm just not aware of because I've been doing it for so doggone long, right? All of us. But I'm doing it less. It's hard work. It's still, it's hard work. Some of those masks, they're glued to my face, right? They got super glue. They're not just a little rubber band around my head that I just, you boop, take it off. It's like I pull, I pull on that mask. It's like, it, it doesn't want to come off. Honesty isn't easy. And Paul puts it first. And he says, that is so crucial to all the other ways of relating that are, that are healthy and good for us. So we, we're called by Jesus to embrace that as a way of life. People will be, the times are changing 
to the point that we're not going to be able to hide and we're not going to want to hide. And we're going to see the cost of hiding. It's going to be so obvious that we're going to have to make a hard choice. We're going to, we're going to, each of us will keep coming to these forks in the road where the Lord, the traffic is pushing us and we have to go one way or the other. And the Lord will bring us back to that honesty fork again and vulnerability fork, but it's there. And maybe you're at it now. Like last week, I'm surprised someone wrote me today about what I taught on forgiveness a few weeks ago. And they, they wrote, I, would, I could read this to you. It's like, it's really funny. Uh, they said, and they're not here, by the way, so I'm not. If you see someone blushing right next to you, it's not because they're the one that wrote me this. So they said, uh, you know, I thought today about your sermon. This was weeks ago, right? Uh, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he was resurrected. Uh, and I'm going to do a check on that. I'm going to ask the Lord today to show me if I haven't forgiven anybody. I'm thinking, well, that was the point like a month ago when I taught that. Like, this one came on slow freight, right? It was like, <laughs> this was not, like, I don't know what they were paying attention to that morning. They knew I talked about it. But for some reason, it just sank in. You mean I'm supposed to pray and ask that? I just thought you meant everybody else. Don't we do that sometimes? We think, oh, you know, when, when like I say all, often, when you listen to some teaching and you think, that is such an awesome teaching. I wish, you know, Fred was here to hear it. Right? You need to stop right there and go, uh-oh. That's, that's, me. that's, that's third grade dodgeball. You know? <laughs> The truth came, I dodged it, and I'm glad it hit Fred, or it should have hit Fred, right? When that goes off inside you, it's just a little tell. Okay. Fourth bullet point. Does what you do with time, money, and energy honor Christ? Now, I just want to read you something from, uh, I got a new book by uh, Eugene Peterson. Great book, great writer. He passed away just uh, earlier this year, I think. And he wrote a book called Run with the Horses. And uh, here's what he said. He says uh, in, in the book, he is talking about a time he saw a mother bird teaching her birds how to fly. Here's what he said. The adult swallow, the mother swallows, and uh, the, the mother swallow got alongside the chicks as they were sitting on the branch and started scooting over and shoving them towards the end of the branch, right? She would just scoot. They were all perched there, and they were just like all, oh, this is so cool. Look where we are. We're out of the nest. We're on the branch. And she would just move over, and they would you get shoved, and they're going towards the end of the branch. You get the picture? And uh, she's pushing and pushing and pushing, and suddenly the end one fell off. <laughs> and the branch was out over the water. This is a tree by, like, some little body of water. And the bird... <laughs> you know, right before he hit the water, just flew. It was flying around. It comes back and lands on the other side of the mother, right? Bird learned something the first time. Don't sit on the right side of mom on that branch, you know. Sit on the big side. Then the second one, the third one was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward and hung upside down. Then he grabbed onto the Again, hard. And the mother 
looks down, and the parent started pecking at the desperately clinging talons of the little bird until it was more painful for the chick to hang on than to risk the insecurities of flying. The grip was released, and the wings began pumping. The mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was designed to do. Birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk. They can cling. But flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best gracefully and beautifully. Giving is what we do best. It is the air into which we were born. It's the action that was designed into us before our birth. Some people try desperately to hold on to themselves, to live for themselves. They look so bedraggled and pathetic doing it, hanging upside down on the dead branch of selfishness and self-centeredness, afraid to risk themselves on the untried wings of giving. Yet many people don't think they can live generously because they've never tried. And I think time and money and our energy are increasingly going to mark the difference between people who realize I that Jesus came, you know, like we read in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave. And that meeting Jesus is experiencing the generosity of God in a way that turns your whole world upside down. That you don't deserve. That you know you don't deserve. And the thing is, it's not just like a little thing you get. You experience this life that starts pouring into you that just seems to keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. And what it's supposed to do, just like, like giving and forgiving, because remember we talked about how forgiving, the word to forgive means to release from debt. It literally is used in the marketplace in terms of finances, of releasing someone from debt. To forgive is to release someone from debt. And the base of the word forgive is give. You're giving someone a gift that they don't deserve. And meeting Jesus, it doesn't just impact us like we go, oh God, you're so giving, you're so good. If we, to, to the, if we let it impact us meaningfully, it will start impacting, like the cross shows us, our social relationships. They, they can't remain the same. And that giving that we see that's at the heart of the gospel begins to work on us, and it starts pecking away at us as we're hanging upside down on the tree branch, unwilling to enter into the life that God has for us that's so much better. And I, I believe without a doubt, and especially our time, how we are investing our time, does how you use your time show giving? Because most of the time when I talk about this, everyone's mind goes to money. And I want it to go to money. You know that in, in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, command those with more money than they need to be generous. He tells Timothy, a young pastor, command those people. 
I'm telling you, if you have more money than you need, you should be generous with it. But I think time is particularly one of the most precious gifts that we have and the most powerful gifts in terms of its impact when we use time for others. Not just me and my family, for others. It, is, it, it shakes people at the core when someone takes time. I had someone recently tell me about someone who they really liked, they respected, spent a lot of time with them. And this person told me, I was so overwhelmed that they were willing to spend this time with me. It made me feel important and loved. And they started just, they just went on and on. I thought, that must have been a cool experience. And they, they just, I thought it was, it was neat. They, were, they told me that just the other day because I was thinking about that in terms of this point. Time is going to become, like in my day, you could tell on Sunday morning who was going to church and who wasn't because women always wore hats when I grew up or some kind of thing on their head when they went to church. And it was a weird thing to me. I look back now and think, what was that all about? And I know the Bible passage that everyone based that on, which I, I just scratched my head about that, how you interpreted it that way. But nevertheless, church people were known by certain things. That, to be honest with you, really? You could tell the Christians by they wear hats on Sunday? I mean, isn't there something a little more significant and meaningful than that wear hats on Sunday? I mean, there's lots of places where people wear hats to that, you know, were sort of socially required for women in particular. I remember when guys in our church started wearing ball caps. People came to me like they were come like like they were up in arms about guys wearing ball caps in church. Like people were coming in naked. They were saying, how can you, you're the pastor, how can you let them wear ball caps in church? That's so disrespectful. Now, I'm thinking of these, some of the people that were wearing them. They really love Jesus. They just like to wear their ball cap. And a lot of times they wore it, if you know. They wore their ball cap because they just didn't shower that day and their hair was all funky looking. <laughs> it was just a way to put, you know, just to kind of cover it up. I think, I'm not going to make a big deal out of this. And I mean, for a couple of years, I can't tell you how much internal tension I had. Every Sunday morning, I'd come to church, and I'm thinking, if these people were as unrelenting about you know, racism, that whole issue would have been solved. But they're unrelenting about the ball caps. <laughs> Can I turn them to something? <laughs> I couldn't. Some of the people just left because they just said, it's horrible. Those are not the kind of things they're supposed to distinguish us. Do you understand? Because over and over, like in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all the, the deepest thinkers and the, the prophets and the voices that spoke to, that spoke from God said, people look at the exterior, God looks at the heart. God looks at the heart, at the inside. And so you go, well, how does time, isn't time an outside thing? Oh, yeah. But the outside stuff shows what's going on in the heart. 
and generosity with your time, doesn't it, isn't time this big, precious thing? Isn't it hard to give up your time? But that shows us what generosity is. And so it's going to be expressed in these really precious ways. Fifth bullet point. What is your posture towards marginalized, minority-type people? And you may go, oh, well, I, you know, one of my best friends is whatever. Well, that's cool. Uh, but that doesn't mean you have any clue about what, generally, what that person goes through as a minority in a, in a larger culture. Because I'm... I'm in situations now where I'm, I'm an old dude now. And I hang, I'm around young people at different times, you know, in our church, but, but outside. And they look at me in a certain way. And they treat me in a certain way. Because I'm not, I'm, uh, there's a bunch of young people together, and I'm not, I'm not, not it's not you guys, it's, it's outside the church. But I feel awkward about it. And I've been in other countries where I'm an American. Or I've been in situations where I'm in some way a minority in a majority culture. And it feels awkward. And I'm just visiting, right? I'm just I'm a tourist. I'm there speaking. I'm whatever. It's a whole other ballgame when you have to live in that. And like there's all kinds of people who are on the margins of, of a majority culture. And Jesus was really big about those people. I put just a simple point. Jesus says, and this is a summary from Matthew 25, where he told a parable about the sheep and the goats. Here's what he said. He summarized it at the end when he told the people, listen, part of the judgment, the day of judgment, what's going to happen there is partly based on how you treated certain people because the way you treated them, he says, he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for these least, the least of these brothers of mine, the outsiders on the margin of life, you did to me. He talked about the people who were immigrants and, and the people who were sick, the people who were in prison, the people you know, who, who were in circumstances. Some of them were circumstances of their own making. Not everybody that goes to prison is... <laughs> not guilty. Many of them are guilty. But yet they still are made in the image of God. They're image bearers and they, and they deserve this respect and, and value and all kinds of things that we tend to write off. But Jesus said, no, don't do that. And if you've been impacted by my generosity to you, it will change how you see marginalized people. Doesn't mean you agree with all the choices they've made. Anything like that, it just means you see them the way you're seen. So, and last all, last all, because we've talked about that a bunch. What is your pro posture towards Christ's bride? What is your posture towards Christ's bride? What's Christ's bride? The church. That increasingly, as Jesus draws near to us, the things he values begin to be revealed. And in, uh, in the first 
century, the church was called the ecclesia, which I've explained to you has to do with the ruling uh, voting citizens of any city, any community. They were the ones that called all the shots in the community. And what he was saying was all of you church people from the you know, lower echelons of society, the people that aren't, you don't, to, to be in, in, in the world's ecclesia, you had to own property. You had to have fought. In most cities, you had to fought for the city at some point. So you had to uh, have been a, a military veteran. You had to be a man. You couldn't be a slave. You had to be a part of some majority uh, ethnic group. And that limited all kinds of people from the ecclesia. Jesus comes along and he calls all these people, like especially if you read the book of Luke, all the people that are listed in the book of Luke that Jesus talks to, Roman centurions. Women who are, you know, uh, of, of uh, suspect moral quality. Slaves. Divorced people. Sick people. These are all the edges of society. Jesus comes in and says, I'm bringing all those folks in. And I'm making them the ecclesia. That they are going to be the ones who call the shots, not the people who do that. So we, we're trying to say, listen, we're the ecclesia. We got this microphone. We're gonna, let's, one of the ways that we partner with God and seeing the kingdom come is we pray together about desperate situations that we know are in the will of God to change. And, you know, we do need to do more. We've got to figure out what it is about gun violence. But people are just stupid who think that praying and comforting people isn't meaningful. I know when people are angry, they don't want to hear that. But God's done more. Uh, you, you can hear stories about the, the, the invasion of God into the lives of people who are violent criminals. And people who you know, are uh, emotionally and mentally uh, broken and struggling who are behind a lot of the, the gun violence that we see. Because people prayed. And the kingdom broke in the neighborhoods. It broke in the families. It, touched, it motivated people to go and love an individual who was an outcast and hurting. The, 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 the bride of Jesus, as God moves, is going to be seen in its proper light as the ecclesia. And sometimes... The times that are changing have changed people's views on spiritual realities, and they shouldn't have changed. Because people, I've had people, some of you guys in the church, quote to me uh, how I'm going to be held accountable for what I teach. Right? You have. And, and sometimes you've done that sort of sarcastically or, you know, challenging me about certain points. And, and it's totally appropriate to do that, to be honest with you, because the Bible says that not many of you be teachers because you're going to be held to a stricter standard. But let me tell you something. 
You don't think that you're not going to be held accountable for what you've heard, however imperfectly it was delivered? And you don't think that in the church that we have real authority, not just leaders in the church, you have authority. There's going to be situations where you are moved by God to say something to someone, to challenge them, to correct them, to encourage them, and they didn't listen to you. They're going to be held accountable by God for that. You had real authority from God to speak into that situation. And we have been so, uh, we so soaked in the mentality of our culture today that there's no authority, you know, question authority. There's not as many bumper stickers out that say that, but the bumper stickers used to say, there, there were, they were, I saw them everywhere, just said question authority. How many of you have ever seen that bumper sticker, right? That is a meme that is influential if you don't know it. And what it's saying is authority is inherently wrong and bad, and you should tear it down whenever you run into it, right? And, you know, like people have often wondered, well, what gives you the authority to do that? It's, you know, it's a, it's a vicious circle. If you reject authority, you're speaking from some authority to critique the use of authority, and so you're assuming that there is some authority, and, it, you know, but you don't, but people who become rebellious don't realize they cannibalize themselves. And we get into the church, and I just want to tell you guys something. You're not doing God a favor by coming to church on Sunday morning. Do you realize that? We're supposed to come to church to acknowledge God on a regular basis. God, you have been good to us more than we could ever, in ways that we will never, we don't have the time to express. And you are good beyond what you've done for us. And that, that our lives should be organized around giving him honor and praise. There's a prophet that said, uh, who is, there's a song we used to sing way back in the day, who is like uh, you, O Lord among gods, uh, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, who's like you. And if we, we get excited about all kinds of things that are cool to get excited about, but it's something, there's something wrong with us when we think, I don't have to be excited. I shouldn't get excited about God. I shouldn't express my praise to God. There, it, it says something about us when we get to that point, right? And the church, all Jesus is coming back for is the church. He's coming back for a bride. He's not coming back for you. He's coming back for his church, and you're part of it. But that, you got to sit with that sometime and, and realize that has real, real life implications. And Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he said, and I put the verse here, he said, after he talks about how amazing Jesus is, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, are, how amazing the plan of salvation is and what God's done and our inheritance and all that, then at the end of that, it's this long run-on sentence. It's like 18, 20 sentences in a row linked together with no punctuation mark. At the end of it, he says, 
And God placed all things under his feet, Jesus' feet, and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, if Jesus is head over the church, which is his body, what it's saying is Jesus is somehow organically, spiritually connected to us. Not you. Us. Us. Do you see that? It didn't say my name. Paul didn't say me and all these other people. He's not saying Jesus is coming back for a pile of rocks. You know, the church is not a pile of gravel. It's a temple of stones built together into something, a dwelling. It's a body. It's a community. It's the ecclesia. It is an us. And when Jesus, things are going to change that are going to bring that into bold relief. And like Bob Dylan said, you're going to miss it if you cling to this cultural way of relating to Jesus that is expressed by this this thing that you think it's cool that you come to church. You know, that you give God an hour or two a day, one day a week. He's worth everything. And the, the single thread of all these points, and there, like I said, there's dozens of others. And I'm, I'm not saying this to, to, to chide you. I'm saying this like, uh, if I could preach this sermon in Bob Dylan nasal tone to make the point, just to bring it home, I would say the times are changing and Jesus and his glory are going to be revealed. And there's all kinds of things that we think or okay, that we're going to think, wow, what on earth was I thinking when I thought that was okay? It, it, it'll just get exposed as something that's really like, wow. You know, I kept sipping out of that cup of coffee that was in the refrigerator thinking it's all all right. And I always did it at night, you know, and just sipped it. And then one day in the morning, I looked inside the cup and I thought, oh my gosh. Oh, that's funky looking, you know. But it, it's kind of tasted okay. We're, we're not going to be able to look at the way we've been doing things the way we have. And it's because Jesus. The, these times are going to change. And I'm not, I'm not saying this is a threat. I'm saying it. you're going to miss something if you don't start asking Jesus about what's going on in your heart more than the outward things you're doing. And if, if Jesus is, he, he is more precious than anything. You know, parables that he told talked about, you know, the, the pearl of great price, the, the treasure hidden in the field. People find these and, and sell everything they have for him. He and his kingdom are those things. Now, we take the Lord's Supper. I'll turn it more towards you guys. We take the Lord's Supper, and Paul tells us something about this deal. And nobody has this figured out. But Paul said what Jesus said, 
he repeated what Jesus said. And he said that, that this, when you take bread and wine as a covenant meal, I'm getting speaker weirdness there, Eric. I'm going to move over here. As you take bread and wine as part of a covenant meal, it is a weighty, powerful thing that you're doing. It is not to be taken lightly. Because the good that comes of meeting with Jesus is incomparable. But Paul said, if we take this covenant meal and our heart is far from him, he will discipline us. And Paul says that's why he's writing in 1 Corinthians 10. He says to the Corinthians, he says, that's why some of you are sick. And some of you even have died because you haven't discerned the body. You haven't recognized the body. And at that point, he's talking about how the rich in the body are mistreating the poor in the body. And other, there's other kinds of socially inappropriate things going on in that church. And he's telling them, when you invoke the king, when you have a covenant meal, people have made covenants between two parties to say, I'm, uh, I'm committing this to you and you're going to commit this to me. And, it's, and this is a covenant meal where we're reminding ourselves of what God has promised us and he's done for us. And we're asking for that grace to be poured out in our lives. And then the privilege comes with responsibilities. And one of the responsibilities, you know, like the, the cross, the responsibilities we have towards God and then towards other people. And if we just think, I don't have to fulfill those, and we take this meal, we're drinking judgment on ourselves because Jesus said, I died so that you'd be freed of that behavior. If you embrace that behavior, even if it's just secretly, you will get corrected by the Lord. And if you keep doing it, the correction will turn up. It will. And so when... When we take the Lord's Supper, we rightly should remember the offer of grace that God places in the gospel. And that, Paul said, when we take the bread and the wine, we're remembering Jesus' broken body and shed blood and the good news of the gospel. And we can celebrate, Jesus is with me, he's forgiven me, all the benefits, our inheritance, right, that come from that. But that isn't just like... A picture of the real thing. It is a picture of the real thing, but it's more. I don't know how to tell you that it's more, except I'm just telling you, it is more because God treats it more than a picture. Do you understand? This isn't, I'm not very articulate about this. I'm a Protestant. Forgive me. There's a mystery in this that's that that word's used about the gospel. It's the mystery of godliness. It's the mystery of God and man becoming flesh and blood and the reality of that. And Jesus comes to us when we see it as more than just a picture, right? A memorial. Whatever things that we've, we've, we've called it. So I want to ask you, you know, is there any of these points... We always want to start 
Like we start with worship. And worship isn't just the warm-up to the teaching. It's not. Worship is the center of the whole thing because Jesus is at the center of it. And I, I just encourage you guys, if you tend to come late, you're coming late to meet with Jesus. So try to come early. Worship is about Jesus. It's, it's us talking to him and thanking him and acknowledging him. It's the heart of this thing that we do. That's why when we decided we were going to do an equipping conference, what could be the thing, what's, one of our, what's our priority that we want to lead with worship? So we brought in someone who's a worship leader who would talk about worship and lead us in worship because we want to see that part of our church continue to grow in, in our personal lives. And it's not just what we do in the 45 minutes or an hour uh, of singing on Sunday morning. It's, it's, it's part of our whole life. But this is a big part of it. And if you go into the Bible, it says that God made a day and he made it holy. He made it special and he made it for us. And he said, I'll meet you then. He didn't make it a rule. He made it a gift. Because when God makes something holy, it means he's setting apart that thing apart for something special. And we take it and we just wrap it up in, a, in, in this rule mentality. And we completely lose then what it is. It's a gift. When we come together, because over the years, you guys know this. Some of you haven't been around long enough to know this. But we've had gatherings over and over and over for years in our church where people walked into this and couples came in and sat in different sections. And during worship, reconciled. Nobody talked to them. We've had couples who come in together who were on the road to blowing their, their family up that were reconciled in a worship session. We've had people get healed. People get delivered of demons. People come to Christ. People have all kinds of profound experiences with God that had nothing to do with anybody preaching to them or saying anything to them. It was Jesus spoke to them, and it happened in this time we call worship. And it, interestingly, it happened in the body. And this thing that we do is at the center of it. And I just want to ask you, is there anything that, that's spoken to you today, anything I've said, any of these questions that I pose, let me read the six questions again. Who do people say you are? Who do you depend on to meet all the needs of your life? How well do your private and public lives align? Does what you do with your time, money, and energy honor Christ? What is your posture towards the marginalized? And what is your posture towards Christ's pride? Is there anywhere in there where God's at work? Because I, I encourage you, if he's speaking to you about one of those areas... Take it seriously before you take communion. Take it seriously before you take communion. You're not stronger than the Lord. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, do you think you're stronger than him? You can just do what you want and, and go on with this Jesus thing. And, it, and he's not going to at some point go, no, 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 no. I'm your father. I want you to share my holiness, so I'm going to discipline you. Not punish, discipline. He, he does that. And it's supposed to awaken in us the wonder of, of a heart that begins to fall in love with goodness. 
and righteousness. That's what happens. So why don't you stand and we'll we'll close and go on. I don't oh my. Well, Mel told me I could take longer today because the practice. My apologies. Yeah, I did. Did. So we're going to let you. I'm going to pray. And you may want to sit and stay where you are for a moment or two to just speak with the Lord about anything that you feel like he's speaking to you about. But we just invite you up to, to take the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to hand the elements out. But Lord, we, are, we want to bow before you before we take your body and your blood and remember uh, who you are and what you've done for us. God, we know that times are changing and that you're in the middle of it. Lord, we've uh, been prone to just be conformed to the world and its viewpoints on things and begin to live in just careless and thoughtless and and foolish and vain ways. And we uh, we want to take your your invitation to follow you seriously enough to take moments like this and just examine our hearts or respond to you when you've examined our hearts. We thank you for the, the promise of your mercy and forgiveness and love and help and provision and power and comfort and every good thing, everything the Father has, Jesus, that comes through you. And as we take this covenant meal that reminds us of you but somehow mediates you to us, Lord, we want to come with as much humility as we can muster. And we ask as we do it, Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. That you would make yourself real to us in new ways. And Lord, we ask that you'd open the door among us again for the inbreaking of your kingdom as we gather and all that we do that the Holy Spirit would begin to make you real to us in everything that we do as we pray and sing and give and listen and take communion and all the other things we do. We ask you to pour your spirit out in increasing ways. And, and we ask it, uh, Jesus, for your honor, that you'd get the honor from it, that your name would be the name above every name and, and respected and famous all around us. Father, we ask you to bless this day and all that we do as we uh, go about our ways. Uh, thank you for this this time, this moment here, and for the blessing we've had this last week with Carolyn Yoder and a team from uh, the Central Illinois Vineyard. Uh, 